Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Dementia Researcher podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We're still uh, in lockdown, so this is being recorded in our respective houses, spare rooms, sheds etc um so we're using zoom password protected so hopefully no naked people will appear uh so i'm delighted to be joined today by three panelists who are all really passionate about the benefits that music can bring to people living with dementia so i'd like to introduce grace meadows who is a musician music therapist and program director for the music for dementia 2020 campaign and pre-COVID, she regularly pay, played contrabassoon and bassoon with orchestras across London. Now, I, I've made a little note here that I've heard of the bassoon, I think mainly from Peter and the Wolf, but I have to say I've never heard of the contrabassoon. Is it bigger, smaller? It, yeah, it is. It's bigger. And uh, think of it uh, as the equivalent of the double bass for the woodwind section. So the big okay, grandfather so, of the uh, woodwind section. Okay, so maybe it's the contrabassoon that plays the grandfather in Peter and the Wolf, maybe. Um, I don't I think it's just the bassoon at that point, okay. but they often double up okay. for that extra weight. <laughs> um, okay, and then next we have Robin Dowlin, who is a postdoc at the Centre for Cultural Value, a research centre which aims to enhance understanding of the difference arts and culture make to people's lives and society by making research more accessible. Um, Robin's PhD focused on understanding the in the moment benefits of music making for people living with dementia. Hello Robin, you've joined us before on a couple of podcasts I think. Yeah, a couple of podcasts in the past on Vivas and um, fostering good relationships with PhD supervisors. But you did them in the nice studio with- I did, yes. Uh, and finally, we have Emily Brotherhood, who also has done a podcast with us before discussing setting up the Rare Dementia Support Study, which I think is still our most listened to um, podcast. So that's good. And she is a research fellow and part time PhD student at UCL. So hello to all of you. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, and so let's start with Grace and maybe ask you about the overview of your campaign and what you're trying to achieve with it. Absolutely. So Music for Dementia is a campaign to make music available for people living with dementia. And the reason why we're doing this campaign um, is because we believe that music should be a right in dementia care and that it should be free at the point of access. And we believe this because we don't have a pharmacological answer to dementia, as we all know. Um, And I certainly personally feel that we have an obligation, moral and social, really, to support the quality of life for people living with dementia and their carers to live as well as they can. And and when we have this thing that surrounds us and is part of our daily lives called music around us in the ways that we have, it makes really good sense to be using that music to enhance quality of life. And we know the research has shown and we're going to talk about it in great detail, I'm sure, the role that music has to play in improving the quality of life of people with dementia. Um, And in order for us to to make music a part of dementia care, we as a campaign have to raise awareness and understanding around the role of music 
in dementia care, why it's so fundamentally important and what we can all do, the, all the different roles we can each play in order to help make that happen. Okay, so is this from, um, what sort of stage are you using the music and is your campaign aimed at? Is it care homes or is it much earlier in the diagnosis pathway, so right after diagnosis? So we believe that music can be used throughout the dementia journey. So from somebody living well to receiving their diagnosis right through to end of life care. And the thing for us is that there is no right way per se with music. It's about what matters to the individual person. So what works for one person at one point in their journey might not be the same for, the, for another person at the same point in their journey, but it could be similar to, to another point in someone's journey. It's really about the personalised, individualised approach to using music. So whether that's a playlist, music therapy, working with live musicians, it really is about what's right for that person. So we talk very much about making music with people rather than doing it to people. So that, that really, for me, is the central point before anyone starts thinking about music, it, you kind of need to get into that space that this isn't something you do to people. You've got to think about how you use music to be with people because fundamentally music's there to connect us. And we know that I, uh, dementia is the greatest isolator and biggest disconnector. So if we can be using music to help people connect, then we've got to do that in the right way that works for the person living with dementia. Yeah, so I guess that leads on quite nicely to the next question, which is how does music actually work for someone living with dementia? And what does that sound and look like? I mean, I guess you're not talking about just turning on the radio and saying, here's a song in the background. No, no, absolutely. And, and that's because music's so much more complicated, really, and complex in terms of how we process it. So we all have an emotional response to music. We all have a physiological response. We have a social response. And um, we know that um, Emily and Robin will be able to speak to this much more, but we, we know that in terms of how the brain processes music, it happens across the whole brain and not just in one region. And it's, it's so amazing the way in which memories get made in association with musical experiences. And that's partly because of when we listen to music in our formative years so that gap between sort of 10 and 30 so many big life events are happening for us and often we're listening to music at quite a, uh, a high frequency so we're you know we're listening to the same songs over and over again i'm sure you can listen can think back to albums that you might have listened to you know uh at moments when you were in a relationship with somebody or a big life event and that music really embeds itself uh, in in us in many different ways um, so the, in terms of what it might look and feel like uh, I sort of go back to that point about personalization it's really about finding out what music matters to the person that you're working with and um, and then thinking about how might they best experience that how might they want to experience that so we say the right music at the right time in the right way delivered by the right person because um, you could play me my favorite music um, and I might really enjoy it but actually I don't like how it's been delivered so I, I don't want to listen to it through the radio I want to be making the music if you see what I mean and you know there's all sorts of access issues as well um, in terms of how people um, experience their music so it's all about having that conversation as best you can with the person living with dementia 
and their carers around what matters to that person and how that how that music can then be experienced. Yeah, you sort of mentioned twice about actually making music with the person or being with the person talking about music. Mm. Do you actually mean making music, like sitting down and having a drumming class or, you know, I don't know, does it work for people who aren't musical? Absolutely. So there is no prerequisite to be musical in order to benefit from it. And I think we can all um, speak to that to some degree in terms of, you know, we can hear our favourite music and we have a very immediate response to it. Um, so it's not about being technically trained. It's, we all have this innate capacity to respond to music because actually we're fundamentally musical beings. You know, we, we sort of have that pre-verbal babble, which is often very, very musical. You hear mothers and infants sharing that babble together and it's really beautiful to watch and listen to. And they're bonding and they're making connections. And really that's what music continues to do for us throughout our lives. So um, in terms of uh, the, the music, making music with somebody, it can be a drumming session, as you say, but it also could be just humming a song and building a conversation that might be a musical conversation. It could be that, you know, one person hums to the other and that is their conversation, but it's done through the medium of music. It's that ability to create communication through the musical connection. But there's a whole, you know, there's a whole way, you know, there's a whole broad church really in terms of how you might experience music. And, and, the, and I think it's a real joy for anyone who is a music practitioner who's going in to work uh, with people living with dementia to find out that somebody has got musical skills because then you make music in a different way to people who perhaps have never touched an instrument and it's a different type of musical experience that's being offered. So you always have to be prepared as a music practitioner, I think, to expect the unexpected in terms of what you might do with somebody musically. Yeah, I think because you mentioned about the formative years between like 10 and 30, let's say 40 for people who are slightly older, um, that you end up with lots of memories associated with music, you know, your school disco, going, doing your GCSEs, university, you've all got that song. Um, but also you mentioned way back like children, and nursery rhymes are just, I don't know, there's something, as soon as I had my child, I remember all the nursery rhymes from when I was younger, and they're just so simple and easy to sing along, and you can see the child just reacting to how you're singing to them. Um, I wonder whether you ever do nursery rhymes. Is that too simple, too far back? Well, I think it's very much about the context, and uh, the choice of music is something you is really it can be a very sensitive issue and it, it, again it's all about what the music might stir up in somebody so for some people those nursery rhymes will bring back wonderful warm memories of special moments with a parent or with families whereas for others they may have a, a different connotation so we'd always try and think carefully and also we we encourage practitioners to be thinking about not infantilizing people through music so um so some nursery uh, songs really do kind of um, transcend age, if you like, whereas others um, very much place children in that nursery age context. Okay, so maybe Emily, we can um, talk to you now because you're not directly involved in this campaign, are you? But can you maybe tell us about your background in this field and maybe the 
MFD 2020 survey, which I didn't quite work out what that was. Oh, the music for dementia, music for dementia. Thanks, Megan. Sorry, that was my fault for using acronyms. That will teach me. Um, yes, I'm a research psychologist at the Dementia Research Centre at the University College London. And um, I'm not directly involved with music for dementia, although Grace and I are currently working on this survey, um, which is how we're trying to survey a wide range of professionals um, and carers and people living with dementia themselves to really um, establish the kinds of research questions that we should be um, and to gain a consensus about the kind of questions that we should be asking um, in research. Um, because I think there's lots of pockets of things going on, but as, as is always the problem, there's so many things going on and so many spinning plates. Actually communicating those research efforts to each other, I think as institutions and as cultural institutions get involved as well, which is fantastic, is a real challenge. So the idea behind this um, Music for Dementia 2020 survey is to put that out this year, but co-design it with carers and people living with dementia and professionals um, and experts in the field. So to be able to kind of draw together those questions shortly and then distribute them and hopefully get a wide range of responses. Um, so that's my affiliation really with, uh, with Music for Dementia and working with Grace so far. Um, in terms of my own research, um, I'm currently um, investigating the physiological responses to music in people living with diagnoses of dementia. So this very much picks up on what Grace was saying um, about trying to ascertain those personalised music choices, but also being mindful that for some people, um, either with language variants of Alzheimer's disease um, and or in the later stages of dementia, but often communicating their preferences via language can be particularly difficult. Um, and so the way that my research is trying to um, tackle this challenge is by measuring physiological responses to music in people at early stages of dementia who can still communicate what they like and what they know. And so I'm looking at subtle changes in, for example, the size of a pupil in their galvanic skin response and their heart rate and, and seeing if those map accurately onto what they're telling me that they like and know about pieces of music as I play them to them. And so if we find that those physiological responses very tightly map onto those subjective reports of the experience of music and that we can show different profiles, if you like, of what the heart rate's doing when, for example, a person hears a song they're familiar with versus a song they're unfamiliar with, we could think about ways that this could apply to um, or become a method of communication um, for people with later stages of dementia who can't use language to communicate that. So that's really, we're right at the very start of, um, of that process, but that's the kind of future site for this particular project. Wow, okay. So you're actually mapping the physiological response because we sort of all recognise that we like music and we know it gives us a response and you hear a lot about it gives you goosebumps with certain pieces of music so it's actually interesting to see that you're looking at how the body is actually responding to music i mean there must have been lots of research done on this but actually then you know correlating that with i like this piece of music my body is also liking this piece of music absolutely i mean also i think it's important to say that I think perhaps one of the most visceral responses that many of us have had to music is probably not the ones that have caused us to leap out of our chair and start you know, shouting about how much we love it or we're in a social setting like in an opera or something that it's not appropriate to do that. But it's that feeling, as you say, that those chills, the goosebumps. And there's been a lot of work in research so far, um, including an article that came out recently uh, last year about musical chills 
And there are diff subtle differences across all of us in the way that we physiologically respond to music. So some people experience musical chills, some people don't have that um, physiological response. So there are, there are definitely challenges in, uh, in this research, but uh, I'm looking forward to kind of delving into the data and seeing what it says. Yeah, I don't know whether you will have got to this bit, but I just wondered, obviously with heart rate and like measuring, what were the other things you said? Heart rate and... Galvanic skin pounds? response? Yeah. Yes, yes, essentially, yes. Uh, yes, yeah. that's essentially the surface of the amount of sweat on the surface. Of yeah, which could, be, which could be, I'm excited, I like this piece of music, but I guess it could also be, uh, this music is causing me trauma or like, you know, nervous agitation and really not wanting to listen to it, which I guess is the challenge if then you're going to use it um, in people who are non-verbal because they're not going to be able to corroborate what your readings are saying. So have you come across that yet, that there are quite similar responses, negative and positive? So um, I'm in the middle of analysing the data at the moment and so I haven't been able to kind of conclude anything concrete um, yet. But it definitely is a it definitely is something to consider. Um, at the Royal Society um, um, conference that uh, my colleagues Emma Harding and Paul Kamick um, presented at, they presented um, the, exactly this topic, and it was about is somebody engaged or exasperated? And really, that's a challenge in all of um, psychophysiological research. Much the same as you could equate to perhaps in neuroimaging when you scan somebody and you see a particular area sort of light up in, in quotes in the brain, whether or not that actually means that a person is thinking about the stimulus or something else. And so it's, it's quite a similar analogy, or I like to think of it as a similar analogy in terms of how the challenges of neuroimaging, you can just as equally apply to psychophysiological research. Um, but it's a really good point, and it's definitely something that sort of needs to be tackled in the field generally, as well as in this particular project. Grace, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I think it's a really fascinating point, actually. And in terms of practice, one of the ways in which um, uh, in the moment that's dealt with is very much through the improvisatory nature of music that gets made of people living with dementia. So I think there's absolutely a role there for playlists and what playlists afford and how they help connections happen. But in terms of what Emily was talking about, that in the moment engagement participation, the idea of being able to use music in an improvisatory form to modulate someone's response because you're there, you're taking in the whole of them in that moment, you know, from the from a, and a glance of the eye to a, a gest, an arm gesture or the whole body movement to the vocalization to just the sense of what that person feels like in front of you. What you can then do as a music practitioner is modulate your response and the music that you're playing with them in that moment. So, for example, if I was playing Loch Lomond uh, with somebody and I saw that that was making them well up, I might just pause a little bit and, and play around with the tempo just to see whether those are tears of joy or tears of a fond moment or actually they're distressing tears. And actually, if, if I could then make an informed decision uh, musically about whether I continued with that piece of music or whether I improvised into something else, moved away from it completely or moved away and then came back to it at a later point. So although I, I guess that's the other side of what Emily's doing research wise, that's how it'd be sort of brought to life in the music in the moment. Um, Robin, I have not forgotten about you. Maybe we can hear from you about your background, your research questions, your thoughts on all of this. 
Yeah, definitely. It's been so wonderful to hear both Grace's and Emily's sort of programmes and research and they just really tie into my sort of research that I did for my PhD. So in a sense, it's always really good to see when your research findings have applicability outside of the seven case studies that you do for your PhD research. So that's a really good sign for me. Um, what I found with um, Emily is that her research, I think, is really this idea of corroborating for people who are maybe nonverbal. And I think something that I specifically focused on in my PhD research was on embodied responses to music and how we can understand the sort of not just how people might communicate their musical experiences verbally, but how they might show this. Um, experience through their bodies and I think this this touches on what Grace was just saying um, and so some things that I found was that you would see people's bodies begin to synchronize with each other and music was a real leveler for that so you would see people sort of almost acting as a metronome together swaying in time to the music and also um, sort of this creating moments of um, these real pockets of intrigue in the group. People noticed that everyone else was doing the same thing and so there was this sense of cohesion um, and even though it wasn't just people with dementia in the group it was this sense of we're here for the music we're not here because I have a diagnosis of dementia. Um, and so my research specifically focused on these sort of in the moment experiences um, and how we might capture these um, in a way that sort of um, showcases the stories of people with dementia um, and really help showcase their creativity um, and their abilities to engage with music, um, whether they have just had this diagnosis or whether they are um, further in their dementia journey. So that's just a very brief overview and re reflections from what both um, Grace and Emily have said. I actually wonder, because we talked, or I did a bit about nursery rhyme, but also music being so strongly associated with memories, but with your, um, you were saying about people were starting to move in time to the music, do you think it helps if maybe they have no memories attached to that music, so they're just hearing music, so they're hearing the rhythm, they're feeling connected to a piece that they have absolutely no emotional connection to? Um, did you explore anything like that? Yeah, so uh, my research was based um, on a improvisatory music making program led by Manchester Camerata, who are an orchestra in Manchester. Um, and their whole approach is about creating new music um, together with a group um, because um, it kind of removes some boundaries to music access to, to a sense because, um, for example, there were people who had um, lived most of their adult lives in um, West Africa and so coming into that space they didn't necessarily have the same repertoire as everyone else um, and so if people were singing say um, the YMCA which is obviously so prevalent within our society and everybody knows it that was would be something that musically wasn't accessible to these other members of the group and so actually using different sort of um, melodic structures and structures that go outside of Western music that we're so used to actually enabled these people to become more involved um, because there weren't the constraints of a sort of shared musical history from the 1960s in the UK, for example. Mm. It seems like there are sort of two broad strands of music therapy and dementia. There's 
memory associated so that's really powerful to maybe help improve memory or you know reminisce about things which is you know quite important and I know the BBC have a music um, memory archive but then there's also separately using music more as a therapy to get people talking about things or you know moving in a certain way so I, I guess are you both are you all sort of more on the therapy side than the memory side? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there, I guess. I think it really depends on the need of the person and what it is that they want to use that music for to support them with. I think the memories can be a great springboard for helping someone to be in the here and now. That's really what we're trying to do with music. I think uh, we all have a past, we all have a present, we all have a future. And what we're trying to do in music is join join that all up so we have this personal present idea that you know as you were saying Robin you, you bring you bring yourself into the moment but then it means that you can also move forward and um, I think music is a really wonderful way of that being articulated um, and I, I think it really does come down to to why it is you might be engaging with certain things I think um, you know if you're listening to music to alleviate a mood or, or to change a mood, then I think you can pop pop on a playlist or um, sit down and have a conversation with someone about that. But it, if you're thinking more about a health outcome or a care need, then you might be wanting to think more about the therapeutic use of music and the ways in which music might be applied. Okay, actually, maybe this comes to one of our questions a bit further down, but engaging with music does have positive health outcomes yeah I think we can all agree on that and maybe Robin did you find that people did move more it was quite a physical activity as well as sort of a it can be quite a passive listening experience but did you find there was more physical movement and that it helped I've got here support delivery of physio programs um yeah I mean it wasn't something that was specifically the outcome of my research in terms of understanding sort of these health benefits but I can definitely vouch for some of my participants who so music in mind happens within a circle and within the circle there are instruments placed on a table which people can go up and um, interact with choose whichever instrument they want to um, but other than that the sort of space in the middle of the circle isn't always used but it was about sort of week seven or eight of the project we learned of um, one of the um, people with dementia in the group had a particular fondness for sort of Cuban music and South American music and as soon as those sort of really um, typical rhythms and melodies started he would get up and use the center of the circle as a performance space and he would dance he would encourage other people to get up and dance with him um, and so I can definitely speak for the fact that music and dance are so intertwined and often they're sort of examined separately so you would have say a music intervention or you would have a dance intervention but the fact is like even just sitting and listening to music yourself um you can your sort of your body in trains to music and your sort of your heart rate might change so if it's particularly um jolly piece of music you might um, get excited and your heart rate might increase and it sort of goes back to those sort of musical chills that emily was talking about so there's something really powerful about music in being able to activate something within our bodies. So, and then maybe that gives us this sort of desire to get up and dance sometimes. Depends on the music. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes, and I feel a bit bad, I don't know who said it, but it was on a 
Radio 3 program was from our bodies to our brains, we are all rhythm. And I think that's really true. And yes, they are so linked, dance and music, because music essentially is rhythm. And then your body just feels it and wants to be part of it, really. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think maybe we need to talk a little bit about integrating this into care. Um, and this is to all of you, really. Uh, how can music be integrated into care? Go. Go. <laughs> well, the, how long have we got? <laughs> really? Um, I mean, there's a, ho there's a whole raft of ways, really. Um, it's, again, um, without wanting to sound as I'm uh, sidestepping, it, it depends on, on where the person's at. If you're working um, in, a, in a care setting that has a, a really uh, large range of needs in terms of people um, who are still verbal, very mobile, their care, the, how you might integrate music into their care is going to look very different for someone at the, with advanced dementia or at the end of life. But it's really about looking at, now that we're in the world of personalised care and individualised care plans, I think it's really about breaking it down to what that person can, um, can be woven into that person's uh, daily care plan so that might be using music to help them get up and out of bed in the morning get them set up if you like um, and that can take the form of a favorite song or a carer humming uh, a favorite song and starting starting the, the connection in that way or it could be you know you have your music therapy session after breakfast it really depends on what resources you've got available and um, what that person can manage throughout their day and of course then there's the wider context of how many people you've got to then replicate that for. But I think uh, the way, one of the ways of doing it is to look across the care plans of all the people that, that the care setting is ca uh, caring for and thinking, where are the commonalities here? How can we bring people together throughout the day to create shared moments so that we've got uh, a sense of awareness of self in relation to others. Uh, we've got a sense of groupness and we, we're creating a sort of community feel. And then how can we also be, sort of weaving into the rhythm of the care day and thinking about the wider community. How can we bring the wider community into the care setting? But we know that's so important and we've seen such beautiful work uh, with intergenerational projects where children have gone into care settings. I have to say actually my son's nursery, obviously pre-COVID lockdown, they used to go to a day centre and sing. It was nursery rhymes, but <laughs> only because they're three. Uh, but yeah, they used to go and it was so positive for everyone. But that's, that's exactly it. The, the benefits are for all really. And, um, and I think there's something really special about those projects because what they do is they um, unmask people. That's, that's the, way, the way I've, I've witnessed it really. Because you, you see the person for who they are beyond their dementia. Um, I had a wonderful um, uh, uh, story told to me about some musicians who went into a care setting and there was a lady who had 24-hour um, care. She couldn't be left to do anything on her own, or so she thought. And some musicians came in and they did some work. And before the carers had even realised what had happened, this lady got up out of her chair unassisted and started moving to the music and smiling. Her whole demeanor changed. And the carers were sitting there thinking, wait a minute, we've been told that she can't do this, that she doesn't have these kind of independent skills. Hang on a minute. And you know, they watched her have a wonderful time. So then they had to completely reconfigure her care plan. 
and think, okay, so what can she do? Because that's the other thing with music and dementia is that for some people, they actually acquire new skills. As Robin was saying, that, that cultural aspect, I think it's a really good point that you brought up, actually. Sometimes the blending of cultures and stepping outside of your own cultural comfort zone means that you can uh, come to something with a blank, blank screen, if you like, blank slate, and you can learn things. I think it's a real myth that because you've got dementia, you can't acquire a new skill or experiencing, experience something and then and get to grips with it and, and enjoy it. Um, I guess it sort of comes. Sorry, it sort of comes back to a theme that keeps popping up: is that it's an innate skill, isn't it? It's something yeah. you're born with. You're very much. It's very much part of your life from birth. You know, hearing the heartbeat in the womb is the classic. But you've had that for nine months, so that's you know rhythm always in your life. Absolutely, and you know we have so many elements of our being that are musical elements. You know, rhythm, pitch, tone, voice, timbre, all those things that. Uh, come together to make us musical beings. Mm. I think this is a, a question maybe to Emily because you brought it up when we were sending around questions but a bit about because we talked a lot about personalized personalized um, medicine you know therapy but uh, people who don't like music it just might not work for them that that must be that must come up. Absolutely. So I've definitely, you know, just anecdotally, I've had participants who, you know, I've asked for the full range of people, people who have actually been professional musicians, right through to people who've said, actually, you know, I, music isn't really my thing. But I've invited everybody to take part and sort of gather that information as part of the research. And I'm really interested to see if there's a difference in the kind of physiological responses that they elicit. But I think it's important to acknowledge without detracting from the amazing work of musicians and therapists, of course, um, that music isn't, and I think Robin, you brought up this phrase, and um, so credit to you, it's not always side effect free. Um, and this is why it's particularly valuable to establish personalised preferences for music. Um, I mean, for example, there's a research group in Australia um, who played Baroque music um, to a group of elderly care residents. And actually it had the opposite of the desired effect and apparently it increased the behavioural demonstration of them being agitated. Um, so of course that's clearly something in care planning that we wish to avoid. Um, and I think answering that question more broadly, I think it's always helpful to ask the question of ourselves. So I'm sure with or without dementia, I think we've all perhaps experienced just how irritating it is to listen to a song that we hate. And then, you know, extending that sympathy into thinking about being in a, that situation yourself and not even being able to communicate that you want it just to turn somebody to turn it off it must be incredibly frustrating so you know you can always feel your heart rate increasing even just at the thought of it so it's definitely important that we um consider that music might not be a panacea um in dementia in the approach to dementia care but as i say without detracting from incredible music programs such as music for life um, you know, it does amazing improvisatory work and I think perhaps that's where the in the moment music research is so important because as Grace mentioned earlier and Robin as well you pick up on these tiny subtle changes and um, so perhaps one song works great and as soon as the song isn't working so well it's exploring that um, and also not being afraid to explore that as sometimes just because someone has you know a negative response to music it might also it's still a response so there is quite this sort of this kind of uncomfortable space that especially music practitioners have to be comfortable in holding of do you explore it further do you move on do you do a bit of both and um, so yeah so I think that's the important points on that one 
Yeah, I guess it's not just uh, both. Everyone's got their hands up. I'm going to say this and then come to you. Uh, I guess it's also not just about the, I don't like this piece of music. I'm responding badly to it. Also, just sensory overload. And, you know, they, autistic people on the spectrum find that, you know, if it's too loud, it's too much. I mean, we've also probably all been there when we're having a bad day. You don't want someone yelling at you or music really loud. But, you know, the supermarkets do time where the, there's no music in the supermarket and the lights are dimmed. And I don't know whether you've found that as dementia progresses, whether that's more common, that uh, it's too much sensorily to uh, be bombarded with music. I, um, I don't know. But also hands. Who had their hand up first? Grace? Um, I was just going to uh, follow up with what Emily was saying in terms of... Um preferences and that again of course these change throughout someone's course of dementia so I was thinking about musicians highly trained musicians who at first actually can't take solace in music and they can't use it in the same way because they, they find that their techniques falling away or they can't remember music in the same way that they used to and so I've, I've found um, cases where people who were highly trained musicians don't go anywhere near music for a large part of their dementia journey and it's only in later stages when some of that emotional attachment to music has has really fallen away because they don't no longer associate themselves as having that kind of status musician status that they can then re-engage with music again so i think that there's something there also about somebody's musical care plan if you like is a living dynamic thing so what might be recommended in you know the early stages might be very very different to what comes up later on for them in sort of advanced stages or you know end of life care um, but I think I think your point about sensory is really interesting um, because we know that there is a, a relationship between dementia and hearing loss and that dementia can be exacerbated if someone has a hearing loss so we're always very keen to try and encourage practitioners to be to almost do a hearing audit when they go into a care setting to find out what the hearing requirements are of people to, to, to do exactly what Emily was saying in terms of helping to mitigate any potential agitation. Um, because we know that, that that's sort of counterintuitive really to what, what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And Robin, did you have um, some points to make on this? Yeah. So it's just coming back to um, what Emily was saying about sort of, musicians and music therapists having this sort of to make this judgment about what is um, a positive musical interaction um, and it really made me think back to um, my sort of being a researcher in the field at the time um, and going up against ethics boards who said if anybody shows any distress you have to withdraw them immediately from the study and this is a group setting these people are working making music together for 15 weeks and it was sort of I had to make real judgments in that setting between what was distress that would mean I would have to make sure that this person was removed from the music making environment and what was just an emotional reaction to music and I think that's something that is very as well as musicians and music therapists doing that in that setting I was a researcher there to observe and for me to sort of luckily there weren't any instances of, of, of any sort of anything I would deem as being overly distressing but it's kind of having that other hat on in that setting as a researcher and how do we sort of ensure that we aren't causing any distress 
Um, and if there is distress, how do we react? So I have many protocols and I'm sure that musicians and music therapists going into these settings have these protocols as well. Um, to be able to guide their practice to enable something to be as safe as possible whilst really enjoyable and fulfilling for someone with dementia. Okay, um, actually Robin, the next question, um, maybe we can come to you about um, a debate surrounding how we measure the impact of music. Um, we're kind of changing gears now, getting a bit more serious. But uh, yeah, maybe you could talk us through that a bit. Yeah, definitely. So um, with my PhD, it kind of came off the back of um, uh, Nick Poncillo, who was at Camerata um, before, um, at the time, um, had met with my supervisor, John Keady, who was working at the University of Manchester. Um, and Nick had um, had this real frustration in that he felt that the sort of evaluations that he was doing of Music in Mind weren't capturing um, exactly what it was that was happening in these in these moments because he was expected to report on um, symptoms, um, reductions in falls, um, things like um, are people taking um, medication or are they taking less medication um, and all of the sort of evaluations that were done really wouldn't show that many changes over time so they would take these measurements before and after say a 10-week program um, and so this was really difficult to sort of digest for them as a sort of organisation because they were seeing these really powerful stories of people um, making music and it really changing their lives. But the evidence that they were sort of capturing wasn't, wasn't seen as sort of good enough to prove that their, their programme had um, an impact. And so it kind of reflects the wider sort of debates in this area, which are sort of how do we measure these impacts? Can we just measure sort of a range of behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia at time A and time B? And that is good enough evidence. And actually what a lot of that research shows is that it's really mixed and it's really difficult to capture a change in a number over time. Um, whereas actually this sort of more in the moment work and qualitative work, which actually gives voice to people with dementia rather than simply reducing their experiences down to a number at time A versus time B. Um, and this has a whole range of sort of challenges within this area because for example, the most recent Cochrane review in this area shows that music might have an impact on depression, but that's it. And they say that the evidence isn't strong enough to be able to draw any other conclusions. And so I know for sort of, I'm sure it's, it's for, Grace feels this, Emily feels this, many musicians that I've worked with feel this, that those sort of research studies aren't capturing what they do and aren't capturing this sort of magic of music. And so it's kind of flipping things on its head to sort of understanding music at that sort of micro level of these impacts and how that benefits sort of more broadly. So, yeah. Robin, this, um, this reminds me of a paper I was reading from a group in Japan who were measuring um, a music intervention over a period of, um, of eight weeks. And they just took time point A as being before the eight weeks and time point B as being at the end. And then sort of went, oh, you know, we did the analysis and actually there was no change and no increase in um, in quality of life ratings and they said oh but actually in the sub-analysis there was a change in session two but they sort of moved on and it's um and I just thought it was interesting I mean this was a number of years ago but I think it kind of reflects perhaps how the field of music and in, in dementia research is, is perhaps you know 
considered this now or considers in the moment research to such value um, because obviously at the time that was just sort of a very small sentence in a publication but actually if sort of delving into that more that's a demonstration arguably of a more kind of in the moment change um, but it was almost disregarded um, at the time because of the overall effect wasn't that it was hypothesized wasn't shown so it's, as you were describing that I was sort of thinking about it and it just reflect perhaps the change in, in mood and tone. And it's really interesting because no, go for it, Megan. I was just gonna say, would you suggest not just time point A at the beginning, time point B at the end, but time points in the moment as we keep talking about. So that would be a time point. Absolutely. I mean this uh, again they didn't they didn't use the types of physiological responses um, that you that you can take in the moment. So for example saliva you know, it's pretty disruptive to take someone's saliva sample right in the middle of a song. So they did it before and after, whereas with the kind of, um, with the wearable technology that, for example, I use in my research, that is quite a discrete sensor that can be continuously measuring. And um, I think I would, yeah, so for this particular research, they, I can understand why they selected to do time point A and B at the beginning and end of intervention and obviously before and after each session. Um, but yeah, there are ways of continuously measuring those things, you know, with extraordinary accuracy in terms of the timing um, and time-related events of those changes that you might see in the moment. Grace? I was just going to echo Emily, actually. I, uh, when I was um, working uh, in a child development centre, I was part of a, an RCT with music and autism, music therapy and autism. And we found just that, that the headline finding was that there was no change and that music therapy didn't make a difference. Having said that, having been with those children uh, in sessions week in, week out, the, the change was noticeable. And it wasn't just the child who, ch who changed, it was then the responses that came about in the change in, because of the changes in the child. So I was thinking about the, the experiences of parents, the experiences of teaching assistants and the experiences of teachers and the ripple effect that goes on that doesn't get captured often in uh, research findings. Um, you know, I had parents telling me, this is the first time I've heard my child speak um, in months, if not years. Um, what is it that's going on in the room here that I'm not seeing, you know, can, can I be a part of that? And then teachers saying, well, you know, I'm finding their attention has been uh, massively increased in class. What, what's going on? And, and what was frustrating, I think, for those involved in the research was that those nuances weren't being reflected in the findings, which is a bit disheartening because actually we know this stuff on a really felt level and we see it and we hear it, but, but it's not being articulated anywhere. And I think... I think that's when the mixed methodology is, is much more powerful. And as you were saying, Robin, it allows more people to have more voices and for different experiences to come through. Because I think we never look at one thing in isolation. You know, I don't look at a person living with dementia and think, oh, that person is just their own contained self. They're connected to people and systems and places. Um, and actually how they are impacts on the people and the places around them. So thinking more broadly is so important when it comes to how we set research out and how we articulate findings and how we conduct it. So what um, measurements were you using? What outcomes were you looking at in that RCT for music therapy in children with autism that meant you weren't, and what should you have been looking at? I think one of the issues with that particular piece of research was the, the scales that we were using weren't actually scales that would get us the results that we wanted, if that makes sense. So we were trying to use uh, a standardized 
autism assessment tool, which didn't actually account for the improvisatory nature of music therapy and what then comes up. And I think this is one of the biggest uh, research challenges for, uh, for, for music therapy and music more broadly is having the right tools to conduct the research in the right way. I don't, Robin, you're nodding and I don't know if you would speak to that more than me, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I think um, when I was sort of doing the review of literature, sort of to, to base my sort of PhD sort of research questions, what was really clear was that there was a real desire to understand how music reduces agitation. And so the majority of the time, the Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory was used as an outcome measure. And this was not showing much change in a range of studies, but then sort of going back to that sort of mixed methods and looking at the qualitative, you have these wonderful accounts of how music um, is changing um, people's sort of outlooks, how it's improving mood, how it's enabling to feel that, that them to feel that sense of connection with another person. But I think what's also interesting is coming back to um, this study that Emily mentioned about the Baroque music was because it was a sort of semi-randomised controlled trial and they were trying to be as standardised as possible, they played this music at a particular um, volume and this was what they were going to do every day. They played it at 2pm every day at this level and it was Baroque music, quite intense, quite um, stimulating music. Um, and then they started to see these sort of um, psychological and behavioural um, challenges arise but because it was in their protocol that they played it at this volume at this time, it wasn't changed. And so I think that's sort of, it's all about context. And I think if you're just using one tool to measure something before and after, it just means that you're sort of not able to adapt to that particular context. And I think what Grace and Emily have already spoken a lot about is this idea that we're not sort of the person with dementia isn't going to be in a vacuum when they're listening to music and it's all about understanding the context they're in, um, the, the, the mood they're in, the sort of frame of mind they might be in at the time and just adapting our practice and I think research should follow suit and have a number of methods available to be able to capture experiences. I really that agree little, with that. Sorry, that sounds a little bit like torture, having it played at the same time at a certain volume every day, like they do in Guantanamo Bay, where they play Sesame Street at you. I mean, it's awful <laughs> and not a relaxing or, you know, therapeutic session at all. Yeah, or a beneficial experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, it comes back to this point again, doesn't it, of the importance of personalization, understanding where the person's at. And Robin, just as you were speaking then, I, I was thinking very much about culture and context, as you were saying. Um, and a music therapist was talking to me about a gentleman who was very agitated, uh, particularly around mealtimes, and they couldn't work out for why. They were like, but he's having his dinner. What's the issue here? And the music therapist was working with him, got to know his culture, his identity, his history. And she felt through the songs that they were singing and delving into his Irish um, history, that in his world, he always had his cup of tea before dinner. And then he would have his dinner and then, you know, do whatever might come next. But uh, what they were doing in the care home was they were giving him dinner first and then he was having his cup of tea. And it was causing lots and lots of agitation. And she managed to talk to the carers and said, oh, I wonder if you, if you just change the order of things and serve him his cup of tea first and then give him his dinner, see what happens. Soon as that happened, 
all that agitated behavior around the mealtime disappeared. It just vanished overnight. And I think that is where music can be so powerful in changing the culture of care around somebody and helping to really understand somebody and give them the personalized care that they need. And perhaps, Brenda, you say about the power of music being allowed to, to, to be evaluated. I think, Robin, just picking up on points that you said about the struggles and challenges that perhaps we've had in, you know, ethical committee decisions um, and in the way that music is somewhat medicalized um, and, you know, trying to shoehorn it into a medical model is, is very much, I can understand why, um, why it's done and why it's a fashionable approach. But I think through all the conversation here, I think it's quite, hopefully it's quite clear that it's a very different animal. And so trying to, trying to sort of, fit it into that it's very you know square peg round hole um, and if we're yes if if but i can understand with ethics committees they are the, and randomized control trials that's a very protocol driven strict inflexible structure and rightly so for when you're delivering a medicine but when you're delivering music it's particularly different and so it's trying to communicate that to the kind of regulatory bodies that perhaps frame the research and you know who we always have to have to communicate with and discuss these things with. Um, so creating more of a dialogue with that, I do think would be a massive help in progressing the field in this particular area. Okay, so not wanting to take the side of ethics committees, but sort of bigger, bigger picture. I mean, Robin, you mentioned about um, a metric could be less medication or more medication, um, but, you know, thinking bigger picture, ultimately, do we not want to be aiming for reviews of medication and that music therapy could be helping that so you know long term after a year could that be used as a metric um i don't know whether you've had any thoughts about that um, i think it can be really difficult to um address that question just because as we've talked about this complexity um but also there are many many music programs that just are not able to run for a year because a lot of the time um, music organisations are finding the funds to be able to deliver these programmes for free because they are quite expensive mm. um, to deliver because you're obviously employing professional musicians or music therapists um, to be able to come into these settings and work with people with dementia. Um, and I think a lot of the time um, it's coming back to this idea of ripple effects. It's not that you could say, okay, music leads directly to reduction in medication. But what you could maybe say is, okay, music makes this person's mood better. And in the long term, that has led to a reduction in medication. I think it's, it's, it would be really challenging to say music leads to this person taking a, do a dose of whatever compared to this higher dose they were taking before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also uh, with dementia being a, a, a condition which uh, causes decline over time, you know, the medical needs may change. So everything is always moving, I think, with people mm. living with dementia. So it's not, it's not as simple as take this drug and this will be the result over a given period. Okay, so I think uh, we're coming to the end today. It's been really great. And uh, I have one last question for all of you, <laughs> uh, which is basically what is your favourite track? What's your favourite music to listen to? Maybe Robin, because you're left on my screen, I'll ask you first. 
Yeah, so um, this lockdown, um, I've been listening a lot to the soundtrack from Waitress the Musical, which I was hoping to see, but obviously cannot see it at the moment. So I've, I've, I have know all the songs by heart, and so I look forward to being able to see it when I can. The next step is learning the dance routines, I assume yes. there is <laughs> Okay, and Grace? Uh, well, the last live music performance I saw was Elgar's um, Cello Concerto, and it's been a lifelong piece that I've loved. So um, that's that sort of kept uh, my hope alive that we'll get back into concert halls and experiencing live music again at some point this year, not next year. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. And um, Emily? Both great choices, can I just say, from Robin and um, I've been listening to a lot of acoustic stuff, so just to kind of keep the blood pressure down in this current situation. Um, but uh, one of my favourite artists is Rayla Montagne, um, who famously doesn't do tours that often, but I'm hoping when lockdown lifts, it might motivate him perhaps to do a UK tour so I can finally see him. Okay, thank you, everyone. And uh, as always, we'll have pan profiles of our panellists up on the website. Please do visit our website. Uh, we have lots of lovely webinars going on and uh, please subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean and any others that you listen to our podcast through. Uh, thank you very much. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.